Thank you. 
Glad to have you joining us online at home or wherever you may be, and uh, encourage you, if you are here in Anchorage and uh, you're comfortable with it, come and join us here in the auditorium. I'm looking around. Uh, we've got masks all over the place. Bless you folks for being uh, faithful in that. And uh, so, you know, come join us. Uh, how many of you have been able to get a vaccine? Have you been able to do that? Bless you. I'm going to get mine today, first one. So I'm excited about that as we continue to move on to kind of getting this whole nonsense under wraps, right? So we can maybe get back to, I mean, I'd like to hug some of you, just being honest, most of you. Uh, it'd be nice to be able to hug somebody again uh, and not be, and not always have that in the back of your head, right? Oh, I'm hugging you. Are we exchanging viruses right now? Let's hope we can get past that day. And I am looking forward to it. And I think we're on the horizon there. So I want you to jump with me to Mark chapter 9. As we continue this series, Mark chapter 9, and uh, if you haven't been with us the last several weeks, or if you haven't been able to catch up online, I'd encourage you to go back, I'm going to say four weeks, maybe five, uh, go back, uh, wherever it started with, I can't remember how many weeks ago it was, that we started with the, the feeding of the 4,000, hey, that's me. Uh, feeding of the 4,000, and then that moving into 
the scribes and the Pharisees uh, kind of trying to tempt Jesus and challenge Jesus and say, you know, do some more tricks for us is basically what they were asking. And Jesus refused to do that. And then we, we move on into the time where uh, the disciples are still expressing doubt. They don't understand who Jesus is. And he sort of, not sort of, he rebukes them for that. Uh, he gets, uh, I think, a little bit annoyed with the fact that they're not seeing, they're not hearing what he's telling them. And it's still not piercing their hearts. They're, they're gaining head knowledge, but it's still being poisoned by the lens of what they think is supposed to happen versus what he's telling them is going to happen and what his purpose is. And then that moves all the way into uh, Pastor Jason unpacked for us the last couple of weeks some great passages, uh, well-known, where Peter makes this great confession about who Jesus is. And it seems like this great revelation. And in fact, Jesus really commends him for it. You know, he, Jesus asks the question, who do people say that I am? And, and they, the disciples answer back a bunch of different people that he's a prophet from old or, or this prophet or that person. And people are talking about this. And then Peter jumps in with this, this revelation. That, and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's great, Peter. That is awesome. I'm so glad that you've realized that. And, and he says, uh, his words are, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood, meaning people, nobody, nobody has taught this to you. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so Jesus really kind of compliments Peter here and, and then says some incredible things about the church that is coming and that it'll be built on this kind of faith that Peter has, this confession. And it's like this, ooh, this big banner moment. And then like 30 seconds later, Jesus is saying to the same Peter, get behind me, Satan. Because even though Peter makes this great confession, it still hasn't pierced all the way to his heart into understanding. And it, it was really great. I loved uh, the way Jason presented this because I'd not heard it in this light before because often... These, these two sections, the one where Peter makes his confession and the one where Jesus rebukes Peter, they're often taught separately. They're disconnected from one another. But if you read them in context, it, it becomes something much more interesting, I think. And we see the, the full uh, measure of it there. Peter makes this confession, and then Jesus begins to talk about his death, his resurrection. And it says in the text, it says that Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. One of the translations that Jason's, Jason referred to, I think, says that he took him aside and began to instruct Jesus. If you can imagine, Peter's going to pull the guy that he just said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, and Peter understands everything that comes with that. That means he's the Messiah, he's the Savior, he's the one who's going to ransom the people. Oh, by, uh, okay, Jesus, uh, let me correct you for just a moment. To, to step aside here with me for just a moment. I, I think you're missing something. And this is when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And then it leads us to this moment that, that follows immediately after all of that transpires. Uh, and we're going to start there in Mark chapter 9, verse 2. And these are still interconnected. And this is the thing that I want you to, to really think about. In fact, uh, let me say a couple of things because you may not realize. I don't know. I don't know what everyone's experience with or understanding is of, of the Bible and how it came into being and, and all of that sort of thing. But like in, in this Bible that I have here, you know, I have, like you do in your Bible, I have the, the book, the chapter number, the verses. That's how I'm able to tell you we're going to be in Mark chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 2. 
But the manuscripts, the, the Greek, the Hebrew, the Aramaic manuscripts, the, the papyrus that these are taken from, they don't have any of those kinds of markings. They're written much like, you know, if you've picked up a book today, just a book that you want to read, it's just paragraphs. In fact, in a lot of, the, a lot of them, there's not even paragraphs, and in many of them, there's, there's not even punctuation. And this is where those who become experts in those ancient languages become so important to us as they translate and as over the, the generations now, we've learned more, we've found older texts, we found older manuscripts than the ones that were used perhaps when the King James was uh, translated. Uh, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with the King James. It's a beautiful translation. But we've learned a lot since then and we've been informed by many things with older, older manuscripts than the ones that were used originally. And we've tried in the newer translations to go with the oldest manuscripts we can find, but ones that are still in agreement with the larger body of manuscripts. But within all of those, there are no chapter markers, there are no verse markers, and there are no little headers that say things like, Peter confesses Christ. Peter denies Christ. The Transfiguration, which is where we're going to be today. Those are in our Bibles, but if we were to read these in the original language, if we were able to do that, or you can, buy, you can actually buy Bibles that have like the book of Mark with no visible markings on it. it just, it's just written as one long story. One of the things I think that our modern translations and, and formats of our Bibles do is they cause us to separate these things from each other because of the way they're divided in the text. And I, and I just want us to be reminded, they're divided by chapter and verse just for our convenience to be able to go to the same place at the same time. Those little headings are put in there, not so that we should divide those sections from each other, but again, just so that we can reference them in a way that gives us a common understanding. And so I think that's one of the reasons why we will sometimes pick seasons like this where we, we preach straight through, for the most part. Sometimes if there's stories that are very similar, we'll skip some of those. We're going to do that here in a couple of weeks. We'll just we'll skip over some of those. But we try to teach it in context and in order. Because I think at least for Jason and I, as we talk about working through the book of Mark, there have been a number of times where he and I have encountered things where we go, huh, I never thought about it like that. Because I've only ever thought about it segmented in the way that it's segmented in the Bible that I use. And so that's why I really encourage you, if you've missed any, go back. And then as we even work through today, try to keep it in context with what has happened before. Because what happens today, on its own, is, is an incredible event but it is not disconnected from what has already happened. In fact, it's very much connected to everything that has led up to here, particularly from the feeding of the 4,000 to this point. All of this, Jesus is drawing a line here that he's trying to get his disciples to grasp something that in just a number of days is going to become very real and is going to shake the foundation of everything that they've thought. And he's trying to prepare them as much as possible. Now, our possibility here today, because we're looking with hindsight, 
is that we can understand some of the things maybe better that he was saying because we get to have the full context and we're not seeing it in real time. But as well, as the story is told now by those who wrote the Gospels, they're also adding some insights that they now realize not having seen it at the time that it happened. And that leads me to one other thing uh, historically that I was thinking of this week. Um, you may not be aware we have the four Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Only two of those are first-hand accounts written by members of the 12 disciples, as far as we know. And I say as far as we know because we're pretty sure that Matthew and John, these are the two, this is Matthew spoken of in the Gospels, who was also uh, referred to in one of the other Gospels as a tax collector who became a disciple. And then John, the disciple John. So, uh, Mark and Luke, I think sometimes we get this confused. We think, oh, the four Gospels were, were written by four of the 12 disciples. But if we go through the names of the 12 disciples, and I, I've done this before, I've, I learned this in a song when I was about 10 years old by the Statler brothers. Woo! If you don't know who the Statler brothers are, you're young. That's the issue. Uh, Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and Philip, Thomas, Matthew, Bartholomew, and Simon, Judas, Judas, James, and John. There's no Mark or Luke in there. These are two people. In fact, Luke says at the beginning of his, he says, a lot of other people have written about these events. And he says, I've gone and tried to research this as much as I possibly can. He's interviewed people. He's talked to people who were there. He's gone to the place. He was like an early day journalist out there finding the details. He heard these stories. He was a believer, but he's like, what? What's, what's the full body of this? And so he went out and he says uh, in his own words that he has tried to research and back up everything that he's put in here with as much uh, background information and with proof from other sources as he possibly can. And then Mark, not entirely sure who Mark is particularly, but not one of the 12 disciples. Uh, some believe that maybe uh, Mark is actually writing Peter's version told to him by Peter, um, and there's some indications in the text that that might be true. But here's what's important about those four books, is that we know from the early days of the church that those four were considered to be scripture almost from the beginning, because the early church referred to them in that way. And then we can even find some extra biblical writings. Uh, Eusebius is one of them. I think I'm saying that right. Um, I can't remember the other one. It starts with a P. Um, they were contemporary writers of the day, but they were not believers particularly. They were just writing about those who were believers. And they, in some of their writings, refer to these books, to these authors as being followers of Christ and giving account of the life of Christ and the stories of Christ. And that's why when we look at this one today, in fact, let's look at uh, verse uh, 2, Mark 9, verse 2, the very first verse. It says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. This is recorded in three of the Gospels. Um, I believe it's Luke and Matthew both record this same story. One of them says six days, like this one does. One of them says eight days. 
that's a common thing too. We know that when we have uh, both eyewitnesses and then people working after the account, sometimes we'll get a minor discrepancy like that. Um, but we see that the, there's a harmony among the Gospels of many of these stories, that they're not contained in just one of the accounts. We'll see them across three, sometimes in two, and many times across all four Gospels, we'll see the same stories recorded as they happen. All right, so let's just work with that first one. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, so just the four of them, right? And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. All right, so let's just stop there. So first we're going we're to deal with that word transfigured. Uh, not a word particularly that we might use in today's common vernacular. Every time I read this, I always think of Calvin and Hobbes, the, tan, the transmogrifier, the, the box, the cardboard box that he would go into or put something into, and then it would change into something completely different, transmogrify, um, something completely unrelated to its first existence. That's not the same as transfiguration. Transfiguration means to, to take something from its, its present state and for it to be glorified to such a point that its beauty is beyond comprehension. Its beauty is beyond comprehension. It's still the same thing. In this case, it's still the same person. Jesus hasn't become someone else. In fact, in, he's, what's really happened here is be, he's become more in their presence. He's become more of who he really is and has been for all of eternity. They're just having the chance to see it for the first time. I was trying to think, what is, what is something that we can kind of picture in our own lives? And, and the easiest place is to, is to go to nature and to think about uh, blooming plants. You know, uh, some of them even, there are plants that by themselves with no bloom are not particularly attractive. And yet that bloom, that bud is still within its capability and given the right environment, the, the amount of sunlight, the food, the care, the water, it will continue to grow. And the plant itself is, is nice, but it's not particularly lovely. But then when those buds arise, even when the first bud arrives, you go, oh, that's nice, that's different. But then when they go into full bloom, we have now, we have changed into something that in some ways feels completely different, but it's still the same plant. It's still the same item. It's still the same creation, but it has, it has bloomed to its full glory. And that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Another thing that I, that I thought of that I kind of, I like the visual picture of because it involves humanity and involves humans, is I want you to picture a time when uh, someone that you love, you've given someone that you love a gift, either that they've, they've really desired or maybe even that they, uh, they've desired but never expected, or that you have found something you just know is going to really connect with that person, and they're not expecting it at all, it's not even on their radar, and you, you give it to them, and they, they open the package or whatever it is, and then that, that reaction, that look that passes over their, their face as they receive that, as they see that. Um, we just had Christopher's 21st birthday via Zoom uh, this past week. He just turned 21. We were blessed to be able to send uh, Stephen, 
our oldest son down to hang out with him for his birthday because Karen and I both had to be here, and, uh, and that was nice. And uh, Lloyd and Vicky came and hung out with us at the house that evening, and uh, we were able to, to pull up the old Zoom and uh, watch him open his gifts, and that was fun. And all throughout, this is, this is what we do at our house, uh, at, on landmark birthdays, especially like 21, he got 21 gifts. Now, don't, don't go crazy, you know. Some of those were like, it was a, a can of Pringles, right? It was one of those. Um, some Slim Jims, things like that. It's not, not going crazy here with the 21 gifts. Uh, and there was no car at the end because he's already got a truck. Um, but there was this one item that he had talked about. It was kind of funny because, I don't know, five or six weeks ago, seven weeks ago, he has a... He has an electric piano that he uses for school because he's a music major. And it's a beautiful piano, but it's not a synthesizer. It doesn't have the cool, like, sounds and drums and all that kind of stuff. It's just a piano with a, some echo and has an organ on there. And it's, it's lovely. It is beautiful. It's a wonderful piece. But he was like, I wish I could do more. And he said, I, I wish they made a little thing where you could just add on to your keyboard and still use your piano, but make more sounds. And I went, you know, actually, in the old days, and I'm talking like in the early 90s, I had a keyboard that was pretty crummy, but a company named Korg had some awesome keyboards with all the sounds. You know, you could have orchestras and drums and uh, an accordion and trumpets and all kinds of stuff. But my piano didn't have any of that. Korg made pianos, keyboards that had that, but they also took those sounds and they put them in little boxes, little external boxes, and you could hook a cable between your crummy keyboard and that cool box, and your crummy keyboard now became an awesome synthesizer. And like nobody makes them anymore, because now you hook your keyboard up to a computer and you can get all the sounds on your computer. Christopher's kind of like me. One, he likes old things, but two, He's like, I don't want to drag my computer everywhere I go just to get those extra sounds. And it is, it's a hassle. From a technical point of view, it's a hassle. I said, they do. They, make, they made these things a long time ago. And I had one up until about probably eight months ago. I found it in the garage. I was like, oh, I wondered where this was. And I took it and I plugged it in. And as soon as I plugged it in, it went poof. And there was smoke. And then it didn't work anymore. And I opened it up and was like, that's not coming back to life. So I threw it out. And, uh, and so we looked it up online and we found there's like three available in the country on eBay, right? So we looked at him and it's like, well, and he didn't have the money to buy it and I was not buying it for him. That's how that works sometimes, right, parents? Um, but birthday was rolling around. We talked about it. I said, let's get him that thing and all the cables that make it work. And so I ordered it, came to the house, I plugged it in carefully, and it worked. Packed it all up, sent it down. So Karen, being the wonderful party planner that she is, those 21 gifts, they were all numbered, 1 through 21, right? 21 was the little box. He's totally not expecting it. He gets to number 21, he's like, can I open this one now? We're like, yeah. He unwraps it, he looks at it, and he's like, This is so awesome. This is the greatest thing ever. And that look, that excitement, that joy is one of the closest things that I think I've ever seen in life to transfiguration. And it's not even close. 
It's not even close. In fact, this description here says that Jesus, in front of their eyes, his clothes became a radiant white. So white that even on the worst days when you tried to acid wash your jeans back in the day and you put in too much bleach and they came out white, it still wouldn't have been as white as this was. It still wouldn't have been as bright as this was. It still wouldn't have been as bright if you were to go to Lowe's and you go to the paint section and there's 450 different shades of white, right? And it goes from the darkest white to the brightest white and you go to that bright white and it's, it's still nothing compared to this. But here's what's important to understand about that. The other part of the, the definition of transfiguration is that this brightness, this change, this glory, this elevation to the greatest level of its being, if something is transfigured, is not an external quality. It comes from inside. Now, we say that about people, right? We, some of us will, you know, there's that saying, beauty's only skin deep, but we go, true beauty comes from where? It comes from inside, right? And, and, and man, that's true. You and I, you know, you have met people who, who might be perfectly lovely and attractive on the outside, but they're, man, they're just ugly on the inside. And it influences the way that you see them. And you meet other people who are, who are perfectly attractive, lovely, wonderful people. They just look like a normal human being, who, whatever that may be. But they have this beauty inside of them that just transcends anything they might look like to our eyes. And you see that and you experience that. And it makes them an attractive person. But this, it's important to understand here, Jesus' clothes didn't turn white. <laughs> Jesus got so bright that the light, the glory emanating from his body was so bright, it made everything of him and on him and around him appear to be blazing and radiant with this light coming from within, his true self. Now, now I want you to imagine that. I want you to imagine being there in that moment. And what would your reaction be to that? You've never seen this before. And then, to top it off, as the disciples are watching this, and I don't, there's probably, there's some movies out there, Jason probably is thinking of titles right now, Frank maybe too, of, of movies where people start from the inside and they get, blah, they get light, and then, you know, usually in the movies then they blow up and they explode or something, but um, that didn't happen here. So that's already going on. This happens. They're blinded. And then, beside Jesus, appears Elijah and Moses. Now understand, the text here doesn't say that there appear ghosts of Elijah and Moses because the Bible doesn't, doesn't support the idea of ghosts. It doesn't say they were the spirits of Moses and Elijah. It doesn't say they were images of Elijah and Moses. It was Elijah and Moses in the flesh in their glorified state because they are now with the Father with Jesus. And I think it's Matthew who says that they 
they arrived there and they were talking to Jesus about his departure. They were having a conversation. It wasn't just, again, we, we tend to do this when we think about biblical events and we, we, try, to, we try to form it in our heads, we, you know, oh, Jesus is glowing. Oh, I just thought of the movie, Sky High. If you've not seen Sky High, it is a great movie. It's, it's one of my favorites. There's just, all the kids have superpowers. They're trying to find out what their superpower is. And the one kid, he, he glows. And, he, and, he, and this is what he goes. He's like, can you see it? And nobody can see it. He's like, well, you got you to turn out the lights, you know, to see me glow. And this is not like that. If, if Jesus clapped his hands and went like this, it was like, Wah! And then Moses and Elijah show up in such a way that the disciples recognize who they are. Now, it's important why these guys show up. Let's continue to read. Uh, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, I mentioned, I think it's in the book of Matthew. I'm sorry, it's in Luke. Uh, it says that they were speaking with him about his departure. Hmm, is that important? Kind of, because... Moses and Elijah both share something in common that's maybe different from, from many others, and it's the word exodus. And if we go back to the book of Exodus, we see Moses leading the people out of Egypt, the exodus, right? The exodus from uh, captivity, the exodus from uh, Egypt across the desert for 40 years, actually around the desert for 40 years, and then finally across the Jordan into the promised land. And then God uh, gracefully uh, allows Moses to die and is buried. But he exodused with the people out of the land. Whereas we get to Elijah, he was considered such a great servant by the Lord God that he told Elijah, he promised him that he would not allow him to die, that he would take him up in a hurricane, that he would exodus from the earth in a hurricane. And so here's two guys who have been given very direct commands and promises by God that they would exodus, that they would depart. And here it says that they come to Jesus in this moment as Jesus is preparing for his crucifixion, for his punishment, and for his resurrection, and then for his ascension, his exodus is coming. His departure is on the horizon, and God sends two guys to have a chat with him about what it's like to depart under the power of God. Isn't that something? But they also represent two other things. Moses represents the law, the Ten Commandments given to the people. And then all of the things that we find in the book of Leviticus about the laws that God gave to the people of God, the people of Israel. And then Elijah, he represents the greatest of the prophets. The one that God said, the other prophet said, would return to proclaim Jesus Christ again. And then, so we have them kind of bookended with Jesus, and Jesus brings the, the law and the prophets together and says, I bring you a new covenant. It was never not about faith. Now remember that, even under the law, the people understood that their salvation was because of faith. We see that illustrated in the book of Hebrews, which was written as an apologetic to Hebrew people from a Christian perspective. And it goes through all those heroes, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, the heroes of the faith. By faith, 
Abraham did this. By faith, Rahab did this. By faith, Moses did this. It was always by faith. It was never by works. Keeping the law didn't save you. Being obedient to the law because you wanted to serve God was an act of faith, and that saved you. But Jesus comes to bring these two things together. In fact, remember, uh, you know, our church mission, love God, love people, coming from the, the greatest commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy strength. And the second commandment is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two things. And so here we have the representative of the law, the representative of the prophets coming together and basically showing to these three disciples that the mantle of faith is fully passed, that it's fully invested, it's fully within the person of Jesus Christ. Now, they don't get that yet because here's what happens next. These three show up, radiant Jesus. Whoa, Moses and Elijah, this is crazy. And Peter says, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And the word tents, there's the word tabernacle. And Peter says, this is awesome. Talk about a mountaintop event. This is great. Let's never leave here. Let's set up tabernacles and let's all just hang out here and we'll all become great friends and this will be the best thing ever. And then, for he did not know what to say because they were terrified, <laughs> right? So he's just he's grasping, he's like, oh, what are we going to do? And then a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. If you go read the account in Matthew, there's some beautiful language in there that describes this moment. It all transpires the same. Jesus is transfigured. Moses and Elijah show up. Peter says, whoa, this is crazy. Uh, let's uh, build a tabernacle for each of you. Let's hang out here forever. But that text says that a bright cloud came over them. I'm like, how bright does this cloud have to be to be brighter than the transfigured Christ? So much light, so much of the presence of God. And it's a, it's a, it's a foreshadowing of what we see in the book of Revelation where John talks about being in fully the presence of God in the kingdom, in heaven, among those streets of gold and, and the, the walls of, of pearl and jasper and the gates made from giant pearls and all those things. And he says, in that city, it's a city of light. In that city, there is no darkness at all. And yet, it is not harsh. It's not harmful. It's lovely. It's beautiful. And so I think here again, notice what's happening here. Uh, the, the through line from the feeding of the 4,000 is this. Jesus demonstrates himself. Remember, they, they feed the 4,000 and they pick up baskets and baskets and baskets of leftovers. 
And then Jesus performs some more miracles. And then he rebukes the religious leaders. And then he's out on the water with the disciples. And they're worried about the fact that they don't have enough bread when he just fed 4,000 people with practically nothing. And he rebukes them again, reminds them of the miracles that he's done. Then he's with them in conversation. And they have this great revelation that he is the son of God. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. And then there's still some doubt because Peter tries to rebuke Jesus when Jesus starts talking about the fact that he's going to be crucified and he's going to rise again, which they still don't understand. And Jesus rebukes Peter and says, this, this is not the talk I want to have. This is not the conversation I want to have with you. This is not what I want you to understand. And so here, God, in his mercy, like he does with us if we will trust him in our lives, instead of kicking them all to the curb and basically saying, you know, I should just start over. These guys are too dumb. They're too thick to get this. God sees that they're still not where he needs them to be for the events that are about to transpire. So instead of leaving them in their doubt, he pushes to another level and he takes three of them and he says, okay, these three, especially Peter, because we've heard the expression of Peter, James and John, the sons of thunder, they've got a passion. They're going to be so critical to the building and the spread of the gospel in the early church. I'm going to take those three with, with Jesus up to the mountain and God the Father says, I'm going to provide an experience that they're never expecting. And maybe this will be one more brick in the wall, one more length on the chain, and they'll see more fully what I'm trying to do and where I'm going and the part that they're going to play. This, this event, this transfiguration, is one more example of the lengths to which God will go. Still today, in our lives, the lengths which God will go to try and reveal himself to those who are trusting him but still aren't fully sure what that looks like. There's a lot of religious thought out there, and we've talked about the legalism over the past several weeks. There's a lot of religious thought out there that says if you're not acting right, if you're not hitting the mark, if you're not doing well enough, God's mad at you. And, and God will reject you, and God will kick you to the sideline, or he'll bypass you and go with someone else. And it's just not biblical. He says, it, it says the will of God is that no one should be lost, but that all should come to know him. We have the story of the lost sheep. There's 100 sheep, 99 of them are in the pen, and, and, and a worldly master would go, well, I've got one lost sheep, but I've got 99, I guess I'm okay. But God says, no, 99, I'm supposed to have 100. Where's the one? And he goes into the wilderness to rescue the one lamb. These guys, they've been faithful. They've been traveling with Jesus, but they still don't fully understand. And instead of God being angry with them, they get rebuked because you know as well as I do, especially you know, as parents or, or guardians, or you're, an, you're an aunt and uncle, and you've got nieces and nephews that you're around sometimes. Sometimes you've got you know, you to put the hammer down, right? Because that's loving. It's not to say that God won't discipline his children, but he is not cruel to those who follow him. He wants you to know his will. He wants you to know his desire. And he's showing it in this story. And so, a little bit on the nose for God Almighty, 
when he comes down in the midst of all this, as the guys are terrified, they're scared, and they're wondering, what are we really supposed to do here? Let's build tabernacles. And the voice of God comes down, and, and it, it like leaves nothing to chance, right? He says, hey, this Jesus guy is my son. Listen to him. That's pretty on the nose. And I love, again, the language. If we find it over, I think it's in uh, Matthew again. It says that uh, the, the men were afraid, and they were cowering, and then they felt, they felt a hand touch them, and they looked up, and it was Jesus looking at them. And I just imagine this beautiful smile on Jesus. And he's back in his normal appearance. And he's, and he's looking at them, and he says, don't be afraid. It's okay. Don't be afraid. And I just I can't imagine the comfort, the peace that they felt in that moment, having seen this incredible miracle before their eyes. And then Jesus, who maybe part of their fear was, we don't belong here. We don't know what we're doing. We don't understand any of this. We're messing this up. Jesus was mad at us a little bit ago, and he kind of, you know, give us a little what for, and, and what's he thinking now? Because this is nuts. And obviously Peter just made a mistake because he said, let's build a tabernacle. And we, all three of us thought that sounded like a good idea. And then, boom, this voice of God comes, and like the ground shakes, and oh, my goodness. And, ah! and then it's, hey, hey, hey. It's okay. It's okay. It's going to be all right. It's just, it's me. Jesus. And then it says that Jesus has a, an important conversation with them. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So he tells them again, This is the second or third time. He's going to tell them again in just a few days. And then he's going to tell them again around the time of the Lord's Supper, the communion, because he wants them to understand. And they still won't fully get it. He's trying to prepare them. He keeps telling them, the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, and the people, they're going to turn against me. And I'm going to die. But he's also trying to give them hope. He says, but I'm going to rise again. But they still don't fully get it. So even though all of these things they've seen, even though God has again shown them an incredible miracle, they've heard the very voice of God from heaven, they come down this mountain, and, and Jesus has asked them to keep this in confidence, because he wants it to be something that's revealed after he's risen, they still wondered what does he mean by this whole rising from the dead thing. And they have some conversation about Elijah, and they're like, because they saw Elijah on the mountain, and they said, Is it, was this Elijah coming back? Um, isn't that supposed to happen before the, the Lamb of God is taken, before the Lamb of God is slain as a sacrifice for the, for the people? And, and Jesus says, well, in reality, Elijah has already come, and they didn't listen to him either, and likewise, they're not going to believe me. And many won't believe me until after I rise from the dead. And when he was talking about Elijah has already come, he was talking about John the Baptist. It wasn't literally Elijah reincarnated, 
but John the Baptist had been given the charge to bring the same message that Elijah brought. Make a way. Make a way in the wilderness. There's one coming. Make straight the path for the Messiah because he's coming. Prepare yourself now for his arrival. It's the same message that Elijah was giving, the same message that John the Baptist was giving. And both of them were rejected. Neither one of them were heeded. And Jesus said, it will be the same until I'm able to fully accomplish what God has brought me here to do, which is to become the sacrifice, the official final sacrifice for the sins of the people, and then to rise from the dead. And then people will really begin to believe in me. And you will be a witness to that, and you will remind them. The other thing that I see in closing in this passage is over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I think something else that God was doing here was he was showing he was showing a, a foreshadowing, a, a precursor to something that we will also enjoy as believers. Because did you know that scripture tells us that we will one day, all of us, all of those who come after us, if we pass before the Lord returns, and all of those who have gone before us, whose bodies lie in the grave and yet their spirits are with God, we're told in Scripture that everyone will one day be resurrected or taken up, depending if they're living, taken up, if they're buried and dead, risen in a glorified body. Guess what? When that happens, you and I will be transfigured. So God was also showing them something that they would learn about later, that they would come to realize later, that they would see in the prophecies of old. And it's in John chapter 15, starts in verse uh, 50. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. So I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so the final thing that we pull, that I want to pull from this passage, is that uh, Jesus is, is, being, is demonstrating through the power of the Father that he is the Son of God. It's one more layer upon layer upon layer as he's teaching the disciples to truly understand who he is, prepare them for his impending sacrifice and resurrection, but he's also giving them a glimpse of our glorious future when this perishable body 
will be immortalized and transfigured and, and realized in its fullest expression of the glory of God. And we will join him and be with him and be with one another for all of eternity in these imperishable, immortal bodies that he intends for us. And that should give us great hope. This final little verse right here. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, because as we work for the Lord, we work towards the inheritance that he has promised us of eternal life, fully glorified. Brothers, sisters, with Christ in heaven at the hand of the Father, doing whatever it is he has for us for eternity, which I, I will tell you is not sitting around on a cloud playing a harp. It's going to be fun. It's going to be great. It's going to be community, and it's going to be loved ones, and it will be glorious to be in the presence of the Father and there with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Labor towards that inheritance. We're going to close with a video this morning. I'll give us a blessing here in just a moment. And... Uh, I want to thank you again for being here this morning. Let me pray with you, and uh, when the video is finished, we'll be dismissed this morning. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause the light of his face to shine upon you. May he turn his countenance towards you and give you peace. Lord, thank you for the, the beauty of your word to show us that, that even in our lives, as with the disciples, when we struggle, when we sometimes doubt when we're still not clear on what it is you're trying to tell us that you are a God who is merciful and will continue to try and teach us and to show us and reveal to us. And sometimes, Lord, even in miraculous ways, if we will see with eyes that will understand. And Lord, thank you also for the example of your word that shows us what you have in store for us, that you've revealed it to the disciples in this moment, and then you spoke to us about it again through the writings of Paul to the church at Corinth, that this same glory, this same glorification and transfiguration would be ours as well on the day that you receive us into your presence. And until then, Lord, let us labor, let us work in your kingdom for the Lord, because we know that that labor is not in vain, but Lord, it's for great purpose. Thank you for your love, your generosity towards us. Lord, be with those who are uh, ill today, Lord, those who may be home because they're under the weather, those who are struggling with finances and those who have job issues that are revolving around and maybe family issues that are revolving around. Uh, Lord, be with those who are, who are in a good place and enjoying you and, and seeing the blessing in their lives, Lord, that they would be encouraged to share that blessing with others and to speak your name. But Lord, again, thank you. Thank you for your love towards us, for every good gift. In Jesus' name, amen.